What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a young teenager, I, like many teens, developed a love of mystery stories. With that love, I also developed a fascination with one of the most endearing literary characters who still has books written about him and films made about him to this day, Sherlock Holmes. There seems to be something fundamentally interesting about a man who can solve mysteries by observing the world around him at such minute detail. It's a testament to the power of the human brain and how it can be used. I must say I still love a great Sherlock Holmes story, and today there is no shortage of fun ones out there, especially for kids. I'd particularly like to recommend the Young Sherlock Holmes series by Andy Lane, beginning with a book titled Death Cloud. This series follows a teenaged Holmes as he begins his career as a detective and hones his deductive powers. Lane's view of Holmes adds a whole new layer to the Sherlockian lore by telling us just what he was like as a kid. I also appreciate that Lane's adds in some great historical detail and even some real-life events when Holmes faces down the likes of John Wilkes Booth. While Lane's stories take a more classic look at Holmes, one of my other Holmes recommendations takes a more non-traditional look. Nancy Springer gives us a female Holmes with a much younger sister of Sherlock, who is named Enola. Enola has the same deductive prowess as her older brother, and she uses it to solve complex and engaging mysteries. Stories like this that extend a classic that we love into new territory is exciting for readers, particularly because there is some familiarity there, but in the end, we are able to see things in such a new way. While I enjoyed reading about Sherlock as a girl, I can tell you I would have been very excited to read about a girl like me who did exactly what he could do. And in the end, I would have loved having Sherlock and Enola's stories to sneak under my covers at night. So if you and the readers you love are looking for a great mystery, you might want to take this recommendation from Rachel's World and check out how authors are re-envisioning the classics for readers of today. For the most part, people stick to what they know, and that includes authors. Young adult novelist Patrice Kendall talks to Rachel Wadham today on Worlds Awaiting about how her writing is influenced by what she knows and loves. Kendall is frequently inspired by people she knows and life around her. And you're certain to discover, in the course of the conversation, an author who immerses herself deeply in the water of life— from humor to people to pets, and of course, the drama of great fiction. Kindle is author of a number of award-winning novels, including Goose Chase, Keeping the Castle, A School for Brides, and her most recent, Don't You Trust Me? Patrice Kindle has shared her home in upstate New York with monkeys, parrots, cats, dogs, reptiles, and small mammals, as well as the occasional birds of prey, and one son and a very indulgent husband. Here's Patrice and Rachel. We're talking on the phone today with Patrice. Welcome, Patrice. We're so glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. 
Well, I am very excited to talk to you, particularly because I am a personal fan of your works. I have read everything that you've written, except your newest book. I haven't quite gotten to that one yet, but looking forward to it. And I'm just excited to share my my joy in your work um, with my listeners. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, two books, Keeping the Castle and A School for Brides. So why don't you tell us what inspired that work? Well, obviously, I'm a Jane Austen fan. I discovered Jane Austen. I was really an Anglophile, even as a small child in my reading. I loved the Mary Poppins books and, uh, you know, a lot of the classic English children's literature. And when I discovered Jane Austen, um, it was such a shock to discover that this woman, writing almost 200 years ago, or now 200 years ago, was so funny. She was hilarious. And it turns out that that English form of humor is one that is very close to my own. And so I became, like so many women all over the world, became a total Jane Austen addict. And one day I just was writing something that just popped out, and I went, this is historical. Um, I know it was the first scene in Keeping the Castle in which, you know, this young woman is trying to decide how she is going to be able to marry some money. And I went, you know what Jane Austen talks about? Yes, she talks about love. She also talks about the intersection of love and money and security. And I realized that that was what I was writing. And so that's, that was the beginning of that. I love that. And one of the things I love about these two books in particular is that you pay such wonderful homage to Jane Austen. And there's some wonderful scenes in there where you can tell that you've taken direct inspiration from her. But you've also, you've also twisted it and made it made it your own. And that humor is just so evident in there. So how how do you make that balance? How do you take that kind of direct inspiration but make it so it's not quite so literal that it becomes a new work even though it has those strong connections to the original? Well, I think it's like any time that you are working with with older work, which I've done a couple of times and I have never actually well, I have done a retelling of a Greek myth. That's true. But again, I mean, it's got to be your take on it. What is the point of rewriting it? I'm sorry, but I'm just not as good as she is. I'm going to have to give it a different spin if you're going to want to read it. Um, So it has to be filtered through my mind. It has to be the way I respond to her. Um, I guess I just wouldn't be comfortable. You know, writing is very much, or any kind of creating, is to a large extent a matter of feel. You feel uneasy when it's not going right, or you feel good when it is. And it's not exactly an intellectual decision, it's more of an emotional one. And if an editor or a, a knowledgeable writer friend, and they can be helpful too, if, a, if those people tell you that the work is, go, is too slow, it's too wordy, they are always, always right you need to cut. That's an absolute rule, because what what they're telling you in a very polite way is, you're boring me. <laughs> and 
and I love how they play that role. You you mentioned the slowness and the pacing, and that intrigues me, particularly with your books, because your books are not really high action books. Nothing blows up or <laughs> anything like right. that. So, I mean, particularly in these kind of thoughtful historical, you know, fiction types of things where you're you're paying homage to Jane Austen. How how do you develop that pacing? Because I, that's one of the things that I just love about your two books, particularly A School of Brides, is that there is enough in there that just keeps you wanting to read, but it's not so over the top that you feel like, oh, there's this huge climax, and it, it really is beautifully paced. So how do you achieve that? Well, you listen when somebody says, eh, I'm getting tired of all this description. I don't want to hear about the more anymore. Or you listen, and you also, you get that, implanted in your own brain as you're rereading your own work and going, you just have this constant warning signal going off. You know, this is kind of starting to drag a little bit. we gotta, we got to pick up the... And usually what you're doing is cutting. You cut something that you, lo- you love yourself, you know, it's a delightful description of something, and then you go, you know, I don't need that. I like it, but I don't need it. And it, it, there's a common phrase that writers use, kill your darlings. The things that you have written and that you worked on and worked on and, you know, you love it, but does it serve a purpose? Does it move the story along? And if it doesn't, sorry, bye. <laughs> Is there still something that you can think of that you cut, that you you still have that little pang of regret that it's, it's st- sitting That's in the slush pile? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not in those books. It's not in that those books. It's actually um, it's Goose Chase, and I'm sure my editor was right on this. As I said, that's the rule that I've made up for myself. Is if they say it's too slow or that it's unnecessary, they are right, and I am wrong. I, as you know, in Goose Chase, I was doing a lot of um, throwing in little references to a wide variety of fairy tales. I had uh, a little scene in in which. Um, Alexandria meets a wicked wolf in, in, the, in the woods that I loved, and it made me laugh. And she said, we don't need it. No, <laughs> my wolf. But I did, I, I was brave. I cut it. It's gone. But I admit, I still feel a little pang, as you say, for my wolf. Well, I, I didn't miss the wolf in Goose Chase. So, you know, that, that may, I bet it's a good thing as a reader. And I, I think that introduces something that I'm, I'm really intrigued to ask you because you write so eclectically. You write these lovely Jane Austen homages. You have written retellings of fairy tales like Goose Chase and um, Lost in the Labyrinth is uh, That's Greek. True. Telling. The yeah. fairy tale was an original fairy original tale. Original fairy tale retelling, yeah. but it definitely takes this inspiration from more of that fairy tale realm. And mm-hmm. then you've written some more more adventures, I guess, is the best way to, to classify them. Um, so how do you pick a genre? I mean, is it just the idea lends itself to a specific genre, or is it something that you that you pick more specifically to convey the story. Okay, if there are are people out there listening who would like to write either for children or adults or for anything like this, let me say this. Don't do what I do. Come on. 
if you want to, you know, further your career, pick a genre and stick with it because you're not supposed to do what I do. But it's very hard for me to stay in one field. I, I don't know. I have a magpie mind. I, I wander uh, between all sorts of different interests, and it's just very hard for me to stay within one little, you know, uh, cordoned-off area. Now, I think part of that is because I am what is called, um, many writers will refer to as a plunger. What that means is I don't outline I don't know what I'm really what I'm writing about before I, I I don't even know the endings of the books until I get there. I write blind, and that's some writers do that. Many writers, however, are more organized. They have the whole thing. They know what, you, what each chapter is about even before they start writing the first chapter. It's all outlined. I think that as a plunger. The people who do that are called plotters. I'm a plunger, meaning I jump off a cliff and hope I learn how to fly before I go smash on the rocks below. Um, I think that because I am that kind of a writer, it's just, it's so random. I mean, there's stuff that just comes out of my unconscious that I have to then decide, well, what is this? As I said, you know, before with um, Keeping the Castle, I had a several pages of dialogue and I'm going, who are these people? Where is this? And I had to work out what it was. And that's kind of what happens to me is that I just have to try to figure out what's going on here. And that's why I keep shifting from genre to genre. But financially speaking, you're not supposed to do that (laughs) because people don't know... They don't know what to associate my name with. They don't know what to expect from me. Well, unfortunately, I think that that's a a sad commentary on the current state of children's literature, because I love that you do so many different things. And it it just is wonderful to me because there's so many entrances into your work from a variety of places that people can can connect with in a wonderful way. So I am quite the opposite. I am glad that you write in all different places. Thank you. I like it, too. But I, one of the things I will say is that I do notice that even though you write in differences, I can till, still tell that it's you. Uh, you have such a wonderful sense of figurative language and being able to do descriptions. Um, you know, like in, um, I believe it's in School of Brides, you make a wonderful description about a gentleman as being a leopard frog. Just <laughs> so, yes, so beautiful. So how, how do you make those kinds of connections and illusions is that is that something that um just comes to you or do yeah. you look at the world in that way frogs in my swimming pool they are the most elegant looking animal they do they look like well and they look like uh, an early 19th century gentleman in a green uh he was he was, they're gorgeous they're just these beautiful elegant frogs and I suppose I just made, mentally made a note, got to use that sometime, but I don't recall doing that. You know, it just, it just pops out. Well, it certainly pops out to the reader, because when I read that, I just was, had a big smile on my face and just had to go back and reread it, because I thought, yes, that's exactly what that gentleman would look like. 
<laughs> so you connected to the reader with your leopard frogs. <laughs> no, it was it was the frog in the swimming pool. Well, how, how much of your life do you bring into these stories? Are there other things that you take from either your own experience as a young lady or even today that you feel comes into your books? Oh, of course. Uh, now, I do not take a character that of a, of a human being that I personally know and reproduce it. I don't do that. But absolutely, there are little bits and pieces of people that I know. One thing you'll notice is that there are more women in my books than men. Um, I grew up in a family. Um, I have three sisters, no brothers. Um, very nice father, but he was a workaholic, and he wasn't, you know, he was at work. So that, and we had, uh, fa- as family friends, we had another family just like ours. They had four daughters and a workaholic father. <laughs> and we all bought two places, uh, you know, uh, summer camps right next door to each other. And it was just like a girl farm. So it was all, my childhood was largely female. And since I do write for teens, I mean, I now have a, an absolutely lovely husband and lovely son to love, but I feel that I know girls better because that was my childhood. That, those were my four formative years, and of course that's the age I'm writing for, so that by and large my books are populated with a lot of girls. So yes, that kind of thing, and of course animals. You'll, you'll notice that there's animals in practically every one of my books and often major characters. That's been a big part of my life. And I think that's true for, for most writers, is that they do bring in the things that they love. They write about what they love and what they feel they know. I think that's a great connection. I remember reading in the back of School of Brides that the big slobbering dog that protects one of the young ladies in the book was based on one of your dogs. That's my boof. Boof the Newfoundland, yes. So what, darling boy? How how did he appear in the book? Was he actually he was dead? He died um, before I ever started it. But the dog Wolfie just started to um, actually the Newfoundland that I owned didn't look as scary as as, um, as Wolfie. Uh, he, in fact, I remember a woman saying, "Oh my God!" When I first saw your dog, I thought, "Oh," but then I saw his face and I went, "Oh, he's fine." <laughs> But one time I was walking that great big 165-pound noof, and a man who evidently was afraid of dogs saw him. He was a delivery man delivering things in a panel truck, and he climbed on top of his panel truck at the sight of my dog. (laughs) And, of course, my dog, Boof, is going, hi. Oh, yeah. You you do. You take little tiny bits of things like that, and you don't even know you're doing it, but you can can trace them back often. Well, and I can see that experience as very clearly represented in the book with the experience there. That that is one of the things I love about your books, particularly this sense of female empowerment with all the lovely women in there, and particularly in School of Brides. There's a wonderful cast of characters of women that are doing all different kinds of things. 
there's a young lady who wants to be a scientist and a young lady who's very shy and retiring and very kind of afraid of the world. And then another one who is very happy to look forward to being a mother and a wife. And and that kind of cast of characters of females is really empowering. I mean, do you set out to make that kind of female empowerment part of the theme of your work? Or is that just something that you bring from your experience? Both, I think. I mean, I, I am pro-marriage, okay? I, I have had nearly 40 years of a fabulous marriage. I understand that that is not something that everybody gets. But I do want to stand as a defender of marriage as an institution because I think it has tremendous value. Now, I also realize that historically marriage has not always been a wonderful option for women. It's been the only option often, but it also has been one that has uh, not, not quite as enslaved, but pretty darn close in some cases. So I guess I want to see both sides of the coin. Um, I'm happy to write romances because I think that the love between men and women is something that civilizes and strengthens our lives on Earth. But I also want to make sure that my female characters don't have to do that, that they have choices, they have options. They can lead the lives they want. So, yes, in one sense, consciously, yes, I am trying to balance between those two things. But partly it's just my own experience, too, just the way I want the story to go the way I want the ending to be. And I love that. So as we kind of wrap up here, I know all the Jane Austen fans out there are going to want me to ask, who is your Mr. Darcy in, in <laughs> keeping the castle and school of brides? I, I could pick one of the gentlemen that I would think is as the Mr. Darcy, but, but who do you interpret as your Mr. Darcy? I liked Mr. Frederick so much. <laughs> it was so much fun to write. He was just, I, I, he made me laugh out loud, sitting all alone downstairs in my office. I'd just be sitting there, you know, chortling away to myself. Uh, he was my, I, he was my, but of course he's not a true Mr. Darcy. <laughs> not at all. He's very different. But he, he is the one that I would, I would pick as my Mr. Darcy. He, he was the one who was the most fun for me. So that's the one I'm going to go with. Well, he has such an eclectic personality, and and I love how between. Mr. Fredericks and then the ultimate Mrs. Fredericks that they they're just such a perfect match for each other. <laughs> they they complement each other so well. <laughs> Patrice, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for all that you've contributed to the field of young adult literature and I look forward to many years ahead. Thank you. That was Rachel Wadham with young adult author Patrice Kendall talking about how her writing is influenced by what she loves. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Jean Nelson, director of the Provo, Utah Library, reviews a picture book titled The Night Gardener by the Fan Brothers, Terry and Eric Fan of Toronto, Canada. The story begins with young William's discovery of a wonderful surprise that will transform his dreary neighborhood. Uh, The first one I want to talk about is a picture book called The Night Gardener. 
and it's written by uh, Terry and Eric Fan. They're known as the Fan Brothers. They're from Toronto, Canada. So unfortunately, they won't be considered for the Caldecott Award because of their, uh, uh, their Canadian citizenship. But nonetheless, they have produced a fantastic book. And it's the, uh, it's, the illustrations are done in a graphite, and then they're colored digitally on a, uh, like a Photoshop uh, type of uh, system. And it's the story of young William who lives on Grimlock Lane. Sounds depressing and dreary, and the whole lane was just like that. It's a wonderful choice of a, of a, a street. And as you can imagine, life is just pretty humdrum. The houses look kind of beat up. Uh, even people are walking around kind of hunched over because it's just grim on Grimlock Lane. Until one morning, young William wakes up, and he and his neighbors discover that a tree outside his home has been turned into a topiary of this large owl. And it's just this beautiful, creative piece, and nobody knows where that came from. And so the following morning, another tree has been magically transformed at night into a large cat topiary, a kind of a, 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 a reclining cat. And so, and as each picture goes by, we're starting to see a lighter version of what Grimlock Lane is. People start standing a little bit straighter, a little bit more color in the illustrations. And, um, and matter of fact, outside of one um, topiary, the home right behind it, all of a sudden, magically, there are workers out there who are fixing up this house. So it starts losing some of its grimness. And one night, as William has uh, watched daily these new topiaries come around, he notices after a big festival, the community even has a festival. They're just feeling good about life because of these topiaries. And one night, he notices this older man who he does not know. Very unfamiliar. And he just kind of wonders, and he starts following this older gentleman through the streets until he's ready to walk into the local park. And the, the man, older man, turns to William and says, I need an assistant tonight. So William spends the night helping this older gentleman transform all the trees in the park into this beautiful animal topiaries and just beautiful pieces of art, and he has a chance to meet the night gardener. And as uh, the night gardener leaves, uh, William falls asleep, and he leaves a couple of hedge clippers for William to continue the work over the years. And so he becomes his assistant. And so Grimlock Lane will never be the same again. The illustrations are priceless. They're just beautiful. And I am so anxious. This is the uh, Fan Brothers' first book. And I am very excited to see what they have in the future. And even as the, toward the end of the book, as we see the, uh, the fall foliage appear in the colors and the leaves start dropping, you know, the trees kind of go back to the way they were. But, of course, Grimlock Lane will never be the same as it has spruced itself up. Neighbors are talking to each other. And it was all because of these wonderful topiaries. Um, children will love it. 
I think uh, adults will love it. It's just a wonderful life-affirming type of a book that just says, you know, bring a little bit of art into your life, and it will just make a difference in your neighborhood and in your personal life, too. Excellent. Oh, that was delightful. Thank you, Jean. You're very welcome. That was Jean Nelson, director of the Provo City Public Library, reviewing the picture book The Night Gardener by the Fan Brothers. We'll look forward to more Young Reader Book Reviews from other librarians in the future. Also, for a full collection of World's Awaiting Book Reviews, you can check out our website on byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.